0: Pod: essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. We have roughly 7.3 billion people on the planet, and 820 million of them go hungry every day. And yet we waste about a third of all the food we produce. Add to that, food production produces about 37% of our global carbon emissions. Somewhere, the mass is going awry. I'm Amanda Carpenter, and you're listening to Spilling the Beans, a series of Planet Pod podcasts in partnership with a sustainable food conference. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking about the challenges of feeding our ever expanding population without destroying the planet. How can we ensure every one of us can afford to eat well and healthily wherever they live and whatever their budget? It's a massive challenge, and it requires innovative thinking, imagination, leadership, and ambition. Where better to start than our guest today? Ivo Mulder is the Head of Climate Finance Unit at the United Nations Environment Programme. He has over 12 years of professional experience working for UNEP, private consulting firms and NGOs. He co-initiated the Red Plus work at UNEP Finance, a framework created by COP to guide activities in the forest sector, and in recent years has worked with several governments on building the economic case to reduce deforestation. Ivo, welcome and thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Pleasure to be here.
0: My second guest, Dorothy Shaver, is a registered dietitian focusing on food system transformation, which drives behaviour change for positive health and environmental outcomes. She is Global Food Sustainability Director for Unilever's food and ice cream brands, where she led the creation of Future 50 Foods Report and has played a major role in shaping and activating Unilever's regenerative agricultural principles. Dorothy, hello, welcome. Thanks for being here hi thanks for having me so can we perhaps talk about where food comes from. And I'm really interested because you both have come at this from slightly different perspectives. Either you're looking at the impact of finance. And in your previous work, you've looked at the impact of, of, of encouraging farmers not to, you know, not to cut down forests and to, to farm more sustainably. And, and Dorothy, you're looking at the fact that we eat a very small range of foods and actually widening of our, 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 the foods that we grow and the foods that we consume. So, so Maybe we should start with, you know, where are foods coming from and, and and have we moved away from a really intensive sort of monoculture or are we still in that locked in that situation where we're just producing very few foods to feed an ever-growing population? Ivo, where, where are we on the kind of bigger food picture?
1: Thanks, uh, Amanda, and a uh, pleasure to be here. Also, a uh, pleasure to speak to you as well, uh, Dorothy. Um, look forward to the conversation. Um, I mean, recently just looked up the, the statistics, but uh, around 43% of all agricultural land has at least 10% tree cover, which means that the, a slightly larger major- majority of all agricultural land is is pure monoculture. Um, and and uh, uh, a large minority... Has at least some tree cover. Um, that said, and I'm, I'm sure Dorothy would, would know the statistics uh, better than me. That there is a very sort of commodified and 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 scaling approach both in developed and developing countries in terms of producing food at ever cheaper cost. Uh, and and um, I think from a dietary perspective, I think Dorothy will probably know better about there's fewer and fewer crops that that we tend to eat as staple crops and. You can question whether that is the right one from perspective of planetary health, uh, but also from a, from a dietary perspective uh, as well.
0: And the work that you did at, at Red Plus was really looking at trying to balance the needs of agriculture and forestry, wasn't it, and, and preventing deforestation. Yeah. Do you feel that we're moving in the right direction there, or have we have we have we still got this this huge challenge on our hands where you know farmers very often feel they have no choice but to cut down trees in order to cultivate land to grow food?
1: Yeah, I I Amanda, I mean I mean I come from the Netherlands, a relatively wealthy country, but um I mean in, in just after the Second World War in the fifties, sixties, we we spent much more of our disposable income on food. Um uh, I think it was in range of thirty, thirty-five percent. I think these days it's I think it's ten, fifteen percent uh of our so we we want we want food to be healthy, we want food to be sustainable, but we don't want to pay for it. Um, and we don't want to pay for it in developed countries we don't want to pay for it in developing countries um so I, actually i don't think that we are on the right track um, i mean when when it comes to energy um, people know that they're contributing to climate change the moment that you start your car in the morning uh, but how many people know where their food is coming from whether it's in a shampoo or in a peanut butter or in a in a, in a sushi roll um, people just don't ask themselves that question, and I think that 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 is where we have to start from. Um, at the same time, I think there's also a growing movement of people wanting to grow uh, and eat locally, um, and and to rethink how food systems need to need to operate. So I think there is at least with a growing group of people uh, a, a question mark of what needs to change, and I think this is also putting consumer goods companies in a very interesting position of, of how they want to to go about that. Uh, is, it, is it food at ever cheaper cost uh, or is it food that comes from uh, farmers where you know your the origin um, who've been growing it at a fair price uh, and where people basically are eating uh, without having to feel guilty about the, the planetary impact? Mm.
0: And Dorothy, that's part of the problem, isn't it? There's no such thing as cheap food in the sense that there's a cost somewhere in the system. And yet we we are narrow, seem to continually narrow the choices of the staple foods that we eat. I mean, the statistics around the, the actual range of, of different foodstuffs are quite startling, aren't they?
2: Yeah, so... It hasn't changed much. And I, I think, as I've all rightly said, we're not really headed in the right direction, unfortunately. So we're currently at 75% of the food we eat comes from 12 crops and five animals. And there's more than 50,000 plants that are out there that we could be eating. Of course, there's probably more, but that's how many are, are potentially edible. So we have to really shift both on the fork side and also on the farm side because farmers only grow what people want so we can't really make farmers grow things that they're not going to be able to sell even if it's better for the land so even if we say you know it's not great that you keep growing the same type of rice over and over again it's you know emitting unnecessary amounts of greenhouse gases it's using way too much water you're harming the soil you know, you're doing monocrop farming, which has loads of, of other kind of challenges and problems behind it. But we can say grow 500 different types of rice and beans and all these other things and utilize cover crops that you're not going to be able to sell because they won't make any money. So they're not going to be, they're not going to do that. So the shift needs to happen on both sides. So some of the work that I've I've done in the past is really looking at uh, helping shifting diets to eat a wider variety of foods just by doing kind of simple swaps or addition to everyday meals. So, just on Saturday, for example, um, it was World Eat for Good Day, which is the nineteenth of February every year, which is created basically by Noor to really work together on a movement to get the masses to shift to food that's better for them and better for the planet by making simple swaps. So. We utilized influencers and a lot of different kind of social media forums to get different people to create what was called the pizza, which is Planet Friendly Pizza. And saying, you know, if we look at everyday foods and try to make simple swaps, so it's not about completely changing everything you need. It's not about learning a million different ways to cook things. It's really about taking the dishes that you eat every day, making simple swaps to, you know, a different type of a grain in the dough or a different type of tomato in the sauce and, you know, topping it with with flavors and also with, you know, leafy green vegetables and beans that are better for people on the planet. So really trying to say, you know, how can we do this? How can we make this accessible to everyone? So. Uh, That was one example, of course. And what we did with that was we actually had uh, in seven cities around the world, we had pleats delivered to people's homes for free so that they could try it and see how easy it is actually just to make that swap. You know, you use the same delivery app. It's the same idea. It's just a a little bit of a different dish. So things like that are, are things that we really need to do together on more of kind of the accessibility and desirability side. And then I think we have to do a lot more together with our farmers to help them really understand Mm -hmm. practices that can be actually more lucrative for them. And I think we have to be more realistic about our conversations with our farmers and our suppliers and say, you know, actually, when we do things that don't harm the earth. The earth works better for us. So then, you know, your yield will be higher. You know, you'll have more species on your land so you won't need to use as many fertilizers or pesticides just naturally if you integrate these practices. And yeah, it may take a couple of years and it, and, and suppliers and farmers are rightly so really risk averse, but we have to be able to really work together with nature so that we build that, so that we build really a system that is, Resilient to climate change, which we know is the cause of a lot of the increase in the in the food prices and the decrease in accessibility of of foods, because of course the. The crop is failing a lot because the climates changed or it's different than it was the previous harvest, so we need to build, we need to build a system where we have climate resilient crops, we need to use less water, we need to emit far less greenhouse gases we need to make sure that we're taking care of the farmers along the way. And the best way to do that is to help them work together with nature, because then they'll have higher yields. If we can really grow the demand of cover crops, then they'll be able to sell almost, you know, ideally two different crops where they'll make far more money. So it needs to actually be an ecosystem approach as well. I think a lot of us work either on the, you know, behavior change and marketing side or on the the growing side and i think we need to really look at it as a as a whole system approach
1: can i can I, uh, j- just just a question uh dorothy i mean um i mean Unilever has been at the forefront of of uh of sustainability for for i think quite a long time um i mean to what extent can you or what, do you want to impose it on farmers because you're ultimately the end buyer or to what extent is this only going to work if if it is through say a kind of engagement, and and do you do you also speak as you it directly with cooperatives or farm groups, or does it always work through, say, a, an intermediary like a business to business company from whom you're buying?
2: We have a very complex food food kind of supply system, and it, it's a lot of different ones. So it's smallholder farmers that we potentially work directly with the corporations. It's it's big suppliers that we work will work with the supplier, or even an in, in between. Company that works with multiple suppliers, so it's a lot of different types of engagements. The way that we really work on sustainable regenerative agriculture is working together to upskill the farmers. So that's done directly with through our Unilever systems, and then we have external groups that do kind of the monitoring and compliance checking. And that's how we've done it the whole time. So. Um, for example, we've moved to 95% sustainably sourced vegetables and herbs for the NOR brand, which is the largest food brand in Unilever. And now, on top of that, so that's the base. So, we use the sustainable agriculture code in Unilever to move them to that over the past 12 years. And now we've launched the regenerative agriculture principles last year, where we'll go to each of, you know, 50. Actually, we're working with 50 different projects by 2026 to work with these suppliers and the farmers on different crops to help them integrate the regenerative agriculture principles. And then with that, we actually work with them to see how they can monitor it, integrate monitoring systems for themselves to look at so that they can help themselves decrease methane or decrease water use, and also working with external partners and experts. So we're working with a few universities and also experts really in the space of monitoring different environmental elements and also in implementing practices that are individual for those particular crops for that community for that area and you really utilizing a certain coalition so
0: can i ask though sorry to interrupt you but can i just ask because because that sounds fantastic and you know that sounds like the absolutely the direction of travel that we all want to be on and we want those farmers to work in a more sustainable way and you want to source sustainably but inevitably someone's going to say but unilever is a big international multinational brand you're a profit-driven organization you know fair enough you're commercial that's fine you need to make a profit and we've just been talking eva was pointing out that you know food has got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper how do we make sure that, that the work that you're doing doesn't just create more cost for the consumer and if it's not creating more costs for this consumer, how do we make sure our farmers are getting a fair deal? How do you square that circle? Because that's quite a difficult profit for everybody in a fair and a fair salary, and a fair wage, and a fair return. For so, so how are you approaching that? Because because that sounds like quite a challenge to me.
2: Yeah. I would say it's absolutely a challenge. So for these first projects, we have a fund in Unilever called the Climate Nature Fund. So we're utilizing a fund that is actually ring-fenced for projects like this. So we're funding them ourselves. It won't go on the on-cost of the product and it won't go on the on-cost of the ingredient itself. We split it out as a project. So that's how we've done it. So Unilever is doing the initial investment in the pilot of these projects. And then in the Perfect world. We'll take all of the learnings and be able to really scale up together with our our partners. I think there'll be a lot of different ways to partner and even kind of co-invest and work together with different companies to really move in this direction. As I said, I think You know, I know I'm maybe speaking like in some naively positive way, but uh, if we do this the right way, then they will have higher yields. So then actually they'll be more profitable. Right. And if we do it in the demand side and we grow the demand for cover crops, they'll be more profitable. So that's ultimately the best way to do it. And the other way to do it is to work together with other companies and you know, even with other industries. So working with like, you know, with fashion or working with um, coffee, which of course we don't, we don't sell in Utilever or or working with other, you know, types of commodities that then we can both absorb the risk and we can both absorb the cost and we can co-invest. So I think there's a lot of creativity that needs to happen. I also think that we really need to speed up technology in this space and we need to be able to really monitor in a very effective, credible and clear way so that we can then measure the impacts and communicate the impacts. And then hopefully, again, in some perfect world, it will also drive demand of the foods that are grown in the right ways.
0: And Evo, finance has a huge role to play in this, doesn't it? Because it, we were chatting before we came on air about the, the, the different mechanisms of getting the money through the system. And, and and I think you would make the point that everybody needs to be incentivized. It isn't just the Unilevers of this world who have to, you know, have some form of incentive. And in their case of, you know, an enhanced bottom line, everybody needs to be incentivized. So so how does finance fit into this picture of sustainable agriculture and sustainable food production?
1: Um, I mean, I think, uh, as Dorothy was saying, I mean, farmers are trying to sort of maximize income, see what uh, are the crops that that, that yield the highest um, revenue for them. Um, I mean, you see a crop like um, palm oil, for example, which is not native to Indonesia or Malaysia. Those two countries have about, I think, 80% of, of total production. comes originally from, uh, I think it's native to West Africa, um, but because it's so, it grows so well and it's so profitable. Uh, it's it's been grown often at the expense. So, if you want to change that, and this is what the Indonesian government and Malaysian government, for example, want to do, pressurized by European countries, for example, who want to import commodities that do not come from deforested areas. Yeah, I mean, it is ultimately a combination of, in my view, uh, repurposing. Uh, fiscal incentives, so not, it's not about reducing uh, agricultural subsidies, but trying to incentivize the reutilization of existing agricultural land, as opposed to incentivizing further clearing of tropical forest. Um, it's about building it into trade agreements, um, bilateral and multilateral, um, and it's about access to finance as well. A lot of farmers have difficulty uh, accessing capital simply because they don't have a, um, a, a credit history. Um, mm-hmm. And also because a lot of banks do not want to take uh, farm risk, they don't want to want to take the direct risk. They want to do it through an intermediary. Um, so, so the role of finance is is how do you build long-term loan agreements, uh, including involving smallholders who are often seen as the bottom of the pyramids, um, but who need to be given the incentives without which the costs are even. Uh, is are either imposed on them or you have a leakage effect where say the good commodities are transferred to certain countries and and the traditional ones uh, remain within the country of origin or, or go to say emerging markets um so so in my view it is about it on the public finance side it is about uh, repurposing agricultural fiscal policies making sure that on the consumer side we pay the true price of food including the water cost the uh, carbon cost etc and not leave it up to the the consumer and on the private finance side it's about yeah, what, what is now uh, more and more in fashion, uh, the so-called blended approach where governments and foundations pay some of the costs that neither a finance institution or a trader or a consumer goods company is willing to take. Or you have forward-looking companies like Unilever who set up a fund themselves to pay for some of these development costs uh, in, in the hope that it will lead to an increase in, in, in consumer preferences down the line, basically.
0: This episode of Planet Pod is supported by global law firm Evershed Sutherland. And we we can't expect consumers to take the full burden of this, can we? Because we know that we have, you know, certainly here in the UK and in other parts of the world, we have increasing amounts of food poverty. And, you know, making food, sustainable food, expensive food is really going to defeat the object of the exercise isn't it so it's a, so does that bring us back to that point that dorothy was making is that we just haven't got enough different types of food in the food systems and in the food chain and if we could grow a wider variety of crops we could make those crops and those those food products cheaper or is there just no link between what's grown and 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 the cheapness at the other end of the system
1: um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I want to throw in another element, um, which is if we want to stay within planetary boundaries, we have to reduce meat consumption by 80%. Yeah. Uh, we also have by 80%. 80%. 80%. 80%. Okay. Yeah. So we, we basically, so instead of eating meat every day, and in, I think in the US, the daily consumption of meat is around 300 grams per person uh, per day which is, is just not sustainable. Uh, in France, the average meat consumption is 55 kilos a year. That's just not sustainable. So mm-hmm. if we, if we want to stay, and, that, and whether it's, it's grass-fed or, or comes uh, uh, from, from soy from, from the Amazon, the amount of, of, of meat, which is a sizable portion of a consumer's uh, disposable or, 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 or budget that they spent on food, would have to go towards plant-based diets, basically. So through that, you could already change the types of crops that that you're eating, and also, in principle, reduce the amount of money you're spending on it. Um, I think, in addition, we simply need to to eat different kinds of vegetables um, and 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 try to have uh, markets developed uh, for that. Um, but but many of these do not have the kind of established value chains that you see for beef or soy or palm oil.
0: So we've got to subsidize the production and we've got to educate the consumer and we've got to increase the choice and the range, really, is what we're saying. And we've yes. got to structure financial instruments that, that allow us to do that, both with some private funding and some public funding. So we've really got to rethink the whole system.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, I think <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of what we're saying is it almost needs to be you know, rethought through. And I think, Ivor, you're making a really good point about where foods are grown. And that's something that we touch on when we when we looked at Future 50 Foods is that, you know, there are places that have a lot of water. And in those places, foods that need a lot of water should be grown. There are places that are in drought. And in those places, foods that don't need a lot of water to grow should be grown and also of course foods are grown often at a too high at a really high amount in places that you know they really shouldn't be grown in that amount which is then of course intensive farming so there's work to be done also I think on growing the right foods in the right ways in the right places in the right amounts or process that needs to take everybody getting on board absolutely Dorothy
0: can you give me an example I mean you've talked about you know Fifty foods. We've got these twelve plant species and these five animal species. We eat. what broaden this out. So, what's in that list of fifty? What kinds of things should we be growing and eating and putting into our sustainable food chain that we're not doing at the moment? That that people, you know, either things people would have heard of or possibly things people might not have heard of in context of, of food. Yeah, sure,
2: so yeah, sure, Future 50 Foods was launched in 2019 together with WWF and some other experts with the intention of helping people to make a few shifts. One of course is toward more plant-based because we absolutely need to make that shift in order to have enough resources. And the second one is toward a much wider variety of foods specifically in the world of grains, understanding that 60% of our plant-based calories come from just rice, wheat, and corn which none of them are great for growing and Mm. none of them really provide a whole load of nutrients compared to a lot of other grains that are out there. So the list consists of... Lots of different vegetables, trying to get people to eat different types of vegetables, whether it be kind of new ones um, that people have never heard of, or it be, you know, a purple cabbage instead of a green cabbage, or an orange tomato instead of a red tomato. So different varieties of, of familiar foods, and also really high nutrient foods such as, you know, kale, watercress, and spinach, lots of beans, lots of grains, nuts, and seeds, seaweeds, and cactus. So... A lot of them are well-known. So, I mean, I mentioned spinach, but also, you know, tomatoes and quinoa, wild rice is in there, but also fonio, bambara, groundnuts, and marama beans are in there because it's a global list, because we need to look at the food system from a global perspective. So, we took into account all of the regions of the world, and we took into account Savory foods, of course, because that's where we get most of our calories from, or we should get most of our calories from. And also really tried to have a wide range of foods that would not just be variety from within the food group, but also across a variety of different food groups that would be able to kind of be put into meals to help provide protein and nutrients in place of meat and animal-based foods, and also be able to provide some from flavors from a a meat-based perspective, such as the umami from seaweed. Mm. So so we're
0: talking about algae and seaweed as well as the kind of more traditional ones like like like, like beans and things. Um, are we having to process those foods to put them into a form that people will not recognize them? Or is part of this education process, you know, like the hiding things in the burger, or is part of this education process actually saying this is just another food group, it's just another kind of grain, it's just kind of another kind of, you know, leafy type of food, you know, learn to eat it as it is, or uh, how much of the consumer education process have we got to go through to get these to be acceptable on people's plates
2: i think it's different in different places because it's very cultural what people are eating and a lot of places around the world they're used to eating seaweed and love to eat seaweed as it is other places you know we've never heard of these different types of beans and we don't know how to cook them so i think it's different in different places the best way to kind of get into people's homes, let's say, and onto plates is to provide it in a way that they are able to cook it and able to, of course, eat it. So, it may, you know, the, the first process is kind of saying, you know, can we use orange tomatoes in our in our soups that we already created nor instead of or mixing orange and red and really getting them out there? Can we utilize different types of rice in our rice sides, uh, you know, to get people to start to be used to it so that, you know, then when they, they see it in their rice sides, that they're familiar with. And then when they go to the grocery store and they say, oh, I've seen that type of rice. And then maybe they'll be more open to, to eating that as well. I think there's also an enormous role for the restaurant industry, which we all know has suffered immensely over the past couple of years. But there's a huge role because we know that people are more likely to try a new food outside of the home than inside of the home. Yeah. So we've worked with Sodexo to actually get um, many of the Future 50 foods, even some of the lesser known ones, into a lot of cafeterias and restaurants around the world. And um, by the time, you know, unfortunately we finished, we had to finish the project. Things closed down, but we'll continue to work on it. We had we were working together with 10,000 facilities of Sodexo to get people to try to, to try these foods because when they try them outside the home, they're more likely to cook them inside of the home. So that's just a few of the different solutions. I think. The other one that I already spoke about is really talking about kind of simple swaps. So yeah. our yeah. products in Germany and things have kind of been created to when they used to be made with people adding beef to a meal maker, to adding lentils or even half the lentils and half the beef or things like this.
0: Okay. Eva, can I ask you, from a farming perspective and from a, a land use perspective, widening this choice of crops that we're growing, is do you feel that's going to help with a kind of Health of the soil and sustainability of the food, the food chain generally in the supply chain. I mean, is there is there a, a, a plus here for the farmers? We've I mean, obviously got to get that financial incentive, is but is there also a kind of planetary plus for farmers and for the rest of us by doing the sorts of things that Dorothy is, you know, advocating from Unilever?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm an environmental economist by training. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I, I don't have uh, a, an, an agricultural background per se, but I, I think uh, knowing what the the planetary challenges are that we are facing, um, I think there is a lot of opportunity as new value chains are being created for some of the crops that that Dorothy was mentioning, that those from the onset are being grown in a more regenerative uh, manner. Um, Through, for example, the climate and nature funds that that Unilever has or through other incentives. we we as, as at UNEP we in the climate finance unit which I'm leading we're we're having a, a few business incubators um, where we're trying to um, work with SMEs and project developers to um, support different kinds of business models where where farmers are growing commodities that are less known some of which are mentioned by Dorothy. Um, with a focus on on land restoration, on increasing income, uh, on 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 gender aspects as well, um, and because you, they are not commodified uh, in a way, uh, there is in a way I, I think a greater potential if you connect them with the right um, intermediaries, uh, off takers, uh, buyers, etc. Then trying to meddle in established value chains with high vested interest where some companies are making billions from existing practices. So I think by diversifying it, I think there's a possibility to to do good perhaps where where some others um, are where we've basically gone haywire.
0: Yeah. And what would you, if you had a kind of wish list, what would you be asking companies like Unilever and others to be doing? you know in the next five years where would you be asking them to put their focus and then their money and their
1: research uh i mean as Dorothy was saying i think i mean what i would be hoping and i i don't know the degree to which consumer goods companies have have a a, a large influence but i think uh consumer awareness uh really needs to incre- improve uh both in supermarkets uh, with retailers uh with with restaurants it's it's not very common to see good vegetarian dishes on the menus be it in the cafeteria be it in restaurants etc that really has to change people need to be uh, motivated uh, to to buy different kinds of of food commodities uh, and at the same time i think a lot of companies have made pledges to go carbon neutral by 2050 mm-hmm. and i would want this not to be imposed on the next generation say my daughter for example who will be uh, who's two years old now and will be 32 um, by 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 the, the time of around 2050. Uh, but to really have milestones in the next 12 months, in the next 24 months. Um, I mean, we can't wait another 30 years to take action, basically. That has to be done now. So those companies who are serious about it, then finally also need to act on it.
0: Absolutely. Dorothy, you you. You know, you're a dietitian as well as, 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 as really understanding the, the the breadth of the food production industry. What do you see as some of the benefits of this more sustainable approach to eating? I mean, we've said that we have to reduce meat, but that's not just because it's a very costly way of producing food for the planet. I mean, it's actually not good for us to eat too much of meat and processed foods anyway, isn't it? So what are some of the benefits of the types of broadening that you've been talking about in terms of the, the food that enters our supply chain?
2: Yeah, so I think just put really simply, when we eat the same foods over and over again, we're getting the same nutrients over and over again. (laughs) Um, So I think that's really, you know, just as simple as I can put it. The other thing is by just kind of by a simple measure, the brighter the color food and the more colors you have in your food, the more nutrients they have. This is the yeah, rainbow course, plate, is it? We have to eat a rainbow on our yeah, plates Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and of course, that doesn't count when it comes to, you know, um, candies and cakes and sweets <laughs> and things. Yes. I'm not putting them down. I love all of those and they're fine in moderation. But when we're looking at our, our meal plates or when we're looking at, you know, what we're eating, it from both a nutrient perspective and from a sustainability perspective, it's much, it's much better to eat more colors. So I think there's, you know, there's a huge opportunity for us to, to, to really get both, which is why we, which is why future foods has been such an exciting piece to uh, create and to champion is that, you know, they, they're one of the, it's a simple way really to get two in one, because Mm -hmm. when we add more variety, we're getting a wider variety of nutrients. And in reality, we actually don't need that much of a single nutrient. We actually need different nutrients to work together to help our body absorb those nutrients Mm -hmm. and also our level of fullness which is very much linked to our ability of course to feel good to have energy and um, to not eat too many calories which we know unfortunately is also a problem in in some certain parts of the world it's best to actually eat a combination of different nutrients at at a snack or at a meal so Eating, you know, a source of protein from beans, let's say a source of carbohydrate from a grain and also making sure that we're getting some fiber and some fat, which, of course, would come from beans and, you know, a good source of fat like some some fish or from a little bit of olive oil. So when we really combine those nutrients, then we feel fuller and we get much more nutrients for our bodies, which then, of course, would lead to much better health. We know that uh, food is a direct, has a drink link to all non-communicable diseases. We know that heart disease still remains one of the number one killers in the world, which is directly linked to what we eat, specifically linked to meat. So if we start to really Decrease the amount of meat and increase specifically the, the amount of beans, which also have a lot of fabulous nutrients, including fiber, which is which has been linked to, to a reduction in heart disease, then we'll be able to actually hopefully through food have a decline in non-communicable diseases. Mm. And I think we often say, you know, um, it, it's more expensive to eat foods that are that are, you know, healthy for us. And that's absolutely the case in some niche ingredients. But when, when we look at you know, beef versus beans, no matter where you are in the world, actually, it's far less expensive to eat beans than it is beef. So that's one of the many examples that we really have to bring forward to consumers and to to the masses to really say actually if you if we can help you learn how to cook these foods and to love these foods uh with different flavors and of course that's the role of many of Universe brands uh to add the flavor of course such as you know helmets with the mayonnaise and the dressings and nor with the seasonings we have a huge role to play in that piece as well
0: yeah so overall we've got to have a you know but I think the message is loud and clear. We've got to rethink the system. We've got to rethink the financing and the support that we give to the producers, wherever they are in the world. And we've got to kind of re-educate our palates. And And I, and I really like that point that you made, that actually it doesn't matter where you are in the world, because sometimes I feel we have these conversations about sustainable food. And I do feel a little bit global north developed countries. You know, this is a, you know, are we talking about a veg box versus organic pint of milk? You know, it, it's really important that this is actually a global issue. And what we're looking at is global food production and global yeah. sustainability and making foods and healthy eating available for everybody wherever they are on the planet as well as preserving our, our planet for our future generations not least Eva's daughter we'll do our best tell mm-hmm. that we're, we're working on it um yes yeah. Huge thank you to my guests. It's been absolutely fascinating, and it's really interesting to, to to hear what you're doing. And and this is a subject we're going to come back to. So, so thank you so much, Eva and Dorothy, for being with us and for sharing your insights. And I think I'm going to try and uh, go out and try you know a whole new range of <laughs> beans <laughs> and pulses as a result of this. So, so thank you know thank you for being with us and. Thank you too to my executive producer and my producer, and to the team at Sustainable Food Conference. And um, this is the first of a series of podcasts around sustainability in in our food. So listen out for future episodes. You can follow Planet Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can catch us on the website. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Planet Pod: Essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet.